0: Praise God. Why don't you take your Bibles out, if you would, please. Turn in your Bible with me to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. I'm continuing the series. I'm going to be on this for a while, because the more I dig, the more I find. And, man, the better it gets. And, oh, my goodness, there is so much to learn from the story of Moses and the life of Moses. So we're doing a series on the spiritual insight from the life of Moses. Uh, This morning I'm going to do a sermon called Deadly Mistakes because uh, I love to study men of the Bible in so much as they are. there's lessons that we can learn from them about life and about Jesus Christ and how we see Christ reflected in them. Moses was a type of Christ, but you understand he was not Christ. There was only one perfect man that came to this earth, and that was Jesus Christ. But there were some parallels between the two of them. <clears throat> he was the deliverer and savior of, of um, the children of Israel. He was also a man, you know. Jesus was also a man, but he said he had like passions like we did, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way as we were tempted, yet without sin. But I love to study men of the Bible, and as I study the life of Moses, week one, we saw God's master plan for Moses and how many times he's referred to throughout the Bible and even in the New Testament. Week two, we looked at the prophetic view where uh said there rose a king who did not remember Joseph and how God uh, delivered the children of Israel from the hand Isaiah called the Assyrian. And we looked at what that meant. <clears throat> week three, we looked at separation from the world. The Bible says that Moses uh, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the children of Israel than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And so we looked at the fact that he separated himself from Egypt, which is a type of the world. He refused position and power, popularity, and pleasure. And then week four, we saw him setting the side of a well, and seven sisters came out. And the shepherds ran them off after they drew the water. And uh, Moses rose up and defended them and fought off the shepherds and helped them water their sheep. We looked at Christian chivalry. And uh, you do things not because they're easy but you do things because they're the right thing to do. And um, when you do and you stand up and take action for God, God will always help you. And uh, He tells you that there's more of us than there are of them. When we're with God, we're never outnumbered. Amen? Amen. And so we stand in 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 the power and we're strong in the power of the Lord and the power of His might. And then last week we looked at the irrevocable call of God. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, it said, The gifts and callings of God are without repentance, or they're irrevocable. And how that God actually called Moses 40 years, when he was 40 years old, uh, when it came into his heart to visit his people. And he went out and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He killed the Egyptian. The next day he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he tried to break them up, and they shoved him away He said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And so he ran for his life, and um, we find him in the wilderness 40 years later. So he's 80 years old at this time, and we see him standing before the burning bush, and uh, and God began to uh, specify what the call was. But you understand, the call happened 40 years earlier, and that call is irrevocable. Once you have a call in your life, it's irrevocable. But I pointed out, sadly, that a lot of people have a call, but they will not go. And when they will not go, God has to send a substitute because Moses began to make excuses. He made five excuses. And uh, finally, God became angry and said, all right, I'll send Aaron, your brother, and he'll speak for you. But I'm going to speak to you and you tell him what I said. And so a lot of times we have a substitute. You remember when Jesus was walking into the city and and they were laying the palm branches and their coats before him. And they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees tell, said, tell your disciples to stop saying that. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out and, and say that, the stones will cry out. Yeah. Now, brother, I don't know about you, but I, uh, God has a call on every person in here. Right. He's got a call on my life, and I don't want some rock taking my place. That's right. Amen? That's right. I want to stand up and be counted for God. Now, today we're going to look at the importance of leading by example. It's not good enough just to say something. We need to lead by example. Show me your faith. Uh, James talks about that. He says your faith that has no works is not really faith. It's dead. He said, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. So we're going to look at leading by example. Now I heard a story about a a real mild-mannered man, and he was tired of his wife bossing him around. So he went to see a psychiatrist. This counselor said, well, all you need is some self-esteem. So he gave him a book on being assertive. And so he thought, man, I finally got the answer. He started reading the book, and he finished the book before he got home. And when he got home, he pulled up in the driveway. Man, he got out of the car. He was a new man. Shut the door in his car. He marched up in the house. He pointed his finger at his wife. He said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man in this house. My word is the law. He said, I want you to get in there and prepare me a gourmet meal. And when you get through, finishing, I get through with my meal, I expect a delicious dessert afterwards. And after that, you're going to go in there and draw me a bath so I can relax. And when I finish my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? She looked at him and said, the funeral director. (laughs) Some ideas might seem pretty good at the time. But the outcome can be deadly. And so today we're going to look at a deadly mistake that Moses made because it may have seemed good at the time, but it was a bad idea. Father, we ask you this morning to help me, Jesus, as I preach your word. God, may we see the truth that's in it. And, Lord, may we not only see it, but, God, may we hide it in our heart that we may not sin against you, Lord. May we walk it out, Father, because our faith that does not have a corresponding action, Lord, it really doesn't mean anything. So, Father, help me to preach today and feed your, your flock. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you found your place in Exodus 3, uh, Moses has been born. God has saved him from the hand of the Assyrian. He has, 40 years later, received the call of God. It entered into his heart to go and visit his people, and he went to see them. Uh, he slays the man, and he has to run from Pharaoh. Then we see him defending the sisters. Then 40 years later... He's got real comfortable, and he finds himself in front of the burning bush. Verse 9 of chapter 3. God says, Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so then he begins to make excuses. I'm nobody, God. I don't know what to say. I don't have any authority. They're not going to listen to me. I don't have any influence over them. Finally, at the end of the day, he just says, send somebody else, God. I just don't want to go. So God gets angry and sends the substitute Aaron. Finally, in Exodus chapter 4, if you'll turn there, verse 18, God has gone through this whole series. Every time Moses would have an excuse, God said, what is in your hand? And he's holding the staff in his hand. He said, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. Tells him to take it back up. He picks it up. He says, stick your hand in your bosom. And isn't that a picture of when we reach inside of us, there's nothing good in there? He says, pull it back out. And what did he see? It was nothing but dying flesh. Because, brother, there's nothing inside of us that's good. Amen? It's a picture of what's inside. And he says, stick it back in. When God touches what's inside, he makes it clean and pure and holy again. And then he tells him, take the water and pour it on the dry ground, and it turned into blood. So he's gone through all of this, and finally Moses gets it. And so he's underway in verse 18. It says, so Moses went and returned to Pharaoh, his father-in-law, and said to him, 'Please uh, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Verse 19 Now the Lord said to Moses in Median, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life is dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons. Now he had two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. And he set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. It wasn't his staff anymore. Do you understand? When God gives you something, it belongs to Him. He's got the rod of God in His hand. I'm not going to preach on that, but it's just a good point. We could preach the whole sermon on that. Hallelujah. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hands, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You've got to pay close attention that I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let, that's a capital M, let my son go, that he may worship capital M, me. That's God. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son your firstborn. Now, it irritates me a little bit to see the movies that Hollywood produces about the Bible because they never get it right. I would love to be the, the the producer of a biblical movie because you've got the script already written out. I mean, you don't have to write it; it's already been written for you. You know, and I just wish they would get it right. You know. Pharaoh knew from day one that he's going to kill his firstborn. All right? So what you need to see is his heart is already hard. Because he knows from the very beginning, as soon as Moses got there, the first thing he told him is God's going to kill your firstborn if you don't let Israel go. So Moses is heard directly from God. Tell Pharaoh, do this or else. All right? So Moses is the messenger. If anybody in this picture should understand the seriousness of God's command, it should be Moses. Can you say amen? Amen. He should understand this. God has just told him, if he doesn't do this, I'm going to kill his firstborn son. Go tell him. And so he understands this. What you need to know this morning is God does not give a command as if it is a suggestion. It's a command. And it will be carried out or else, period. And God has never changed, church. He said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When God gives a command, it is not a suggestion. It is a command, and it will be followed to the latter or else. Now, Moses had two objectives. One is to free the children of Israel. But also, he was going to warn pharaoh go tell pharaoh do this or else do you understand this pharaoh could have followed the instructions of god he could have followed god's instructions god is merciful he's gracious he's loving he's compassionate he is also a god of wrath verse 21b says but i will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go so some people may look at that and say, well, Pharaoh didn't have a choice. He was predestined to hell. That is not what that is saying. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. God didn't say, he's going to hell and there's nothing he can do about it because I'm going to harden his heart. God didn't say, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. You've got to read the latter part of that. Sometimes I, I look at the commentaries to try to find the explanations for some of these things and I, I really get bogged down in all the different ideas about why that's in there. So what I've learned, all a commentary is is some man's idea on what is being said. Now they cross-reference and use a lot of Hebrew study and, and, and the Greek and they go back to the original manuscripts and they cross-reference it and try to come up with a conclusion. And more, more times than not, If you read more than one commentary, you get more than one opinion. And so sometimes when I do that, I kind of get bogged down with the explanation. So when I do that, I just go to God and say, Lord, there's got to be a message here. Can you show me, I mean, this guy, this is his opinion. I got an opinion too. And this is what I concluded. Enough pain, church, will change anybody's mind. If you're suffering enough, you will finally give in. You'll cave in. Pharaoh could have caved in because of all the plagues and still not acknowledged who was behind it all. If God sent all the plagues and and the curses and the Nile turning into blood and the frogs and the lice and the cattle dying with plagues and all of that, he could have finally said, all right, enough. Just go. And just said it was coincidence. And never acknowledged that it was God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, the next chapter, we see the very first encounter with Pharaoh. Verse 1, it says, After Moses and Aras went into Pharaoh, they said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, now this shows his heart. God didn't do this. This is what's in his heart. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. You see, the condition of his heart was already hardened. But it was not hardened beyond the point of yielding if there was enough pain. But as a result of the hardened heart of Pharaoh, this is the part that the commentaries and I think a lot of people miss many of the Egyptians followed the, G, the Jews out of Egypt. There was an estimated 20,000 Egyptians that followed God because of this. Because at one point, even Pharaoh's magicians said, in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 19, look at this. It said, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of capital G-O-D. This is the finger of God, the Hebrew God, that's doing this. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So, this is is the deal. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let them go, so that they would at some point all acknowledge this is not coincidence, this is the hand of God doing this. And as a result, 20,000 Egyptians followed God. And I, I begin to see for the first time in studying this that this was, this was God's way of being merciful to the Egyptian people. See, every, every command that God has, that when it's not followed and His wrath comes as a result of that, it can all be wiped away With this very one underlying condition, unless they repent. Pharaoh could have repented at any time and had God's favor on his life. He was not predestined to go to hell. His heart was hard, but God hardened the heart of a hard hearted man, if that makes sense. So that no matter what happens, he's not going to give in to the pain, he's going to stay his ground. I will not relent, I will not yield. And through that, God showed his mercy because God knew Pharaoh would not repent. He made sure that he would not relent. So he acknowledged that it was God that it worked. There was over 3 million. I looked it up. There was 600,000 soldiers fighting age that came out of Egypt. 400,000 estimated wives, which made about 2 million uh, there was about two million. After you give them five children each, is an average of five children each, forty-five thousand Levites, thirty-three thousand of them probably had wives with their children. Was one hundred sixty-five thousand? Over three million people came out of Egypt. Twenty thousand of which were Egyptians, because of the grace and mercy of God. He's looking down. This man's heart is already hard. He's going to hell. I didn't send him there. He has a choice. He can repent, but he's not going to repent because his heart heart is hard. So I'm going to make his heart even harder so that his people will see that it is my hand doing this, and they will follow me. Do you see God's grace and his mercy in that? Because I've looked at it before. It's like, well, why didn't he give Pharaoh an option, a chance? He did. And he would have. Now, Moses is setting out to do the right thing, but he makes a deadly mistake. Because he knows the seriousness of God's command. Verse 23, let's read it again. So I say to you, let my son go, that my servants, uh, that they may serve me. But if he refuses to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So here's Moses, and he's heard this command from God. Go tell Pharaoh, do this or else. And so he starts out and he's about to do something that God is not going to accept. He's going to lead by words, he's going to lead by signs and wonders. He's got the stick, he can throw it down, it's going to turn into a snake. He he can make leprosy appear, he can pour water out and it turns into blood. So he's going to lead with the words, he's going to lead with signs and wonders but he's not going to lead by personal action. It's a deadly mistake. Chapter 4, verse 23, look at it with me. Verse 24, I'm sorry. Moses sets out. It says, and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Moses has got the command of God. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. They're my firstborn son. If you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Moses said, yes, sir. He starts out, and then he's halfway there somewhere, and he sets up a camp. And God shows up and says, Moses, I'm going to kill you. You say, my Lord, what did Moses do? God has spent 80 years preparing this man for this moment. And now he's ticked God off to the point God's getting ready to kill him. Verse 25, then his wife, Zipporah, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, that would be Gershom, the oldest one, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, that's a capital H, let him, little h, go. That's God let Moses go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. You say, my goodness, what in the world is happening? Moses is getting ready to do the signs and the wonders and preach the words, but he hasn't taken the personal action that is required. He's about to deliver the command of God to Pharaoh while disobeying a very basic Jewish command himself. Because he is a Jew, the descendant of Abraham. His wife is the descendant of Abraham. Not a Jew, but still the descendant of Abraham. Abraham received in Genesis, if you look there in 17, verses 9 through 14, a command from God. God said to Abraham, now this is the father of both Zipporah and Moses, They're descendants of Abraham. He says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. This would have meant Ishmael and all of his children. It it would have meant Isaac, the son of Sarah. And it would have meant the sons of uh, Keturah, his third wife, of which Zipporah was a descendant of that bloodline all your descendants, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, and it's interesting to note, some of you are studying medicine right now. We've got quite a few people going through nursing school. Check this out for me. Because I have been told that on the eighth day of a baby's life, their blood will congeal on that particular day more than any other time in their life. There's a reason for this. On the eighth day, you will circumcise the male child in, in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, He who is born in your house or he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, I'm going to kill him. Now Moses knew this. But he, for whatever reason, and not the commentaries they go all over the place, why he had not circumcised his son. The point is, he didn't do it. He's going to go tell somebody else what to do, but not do it himself. Are you hearing me, Church? It's one thing to say something, but does your actions line up with your words? God's command is not a suggestion. It is a command, and it will be carried out or else. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's loving and compassionate. But let me tell you something. He is a loving father, but he is not an indulgent parent. Church, it doesn't do us any favor for God to wink at our sin. Eli had two sons. They were both priests. They were stealing money out of the treasury. They were stealing the meat that was offered a sacrifice, they were seducing women in the church, and Eli wouldn't do anything about it. He was an indulgent father. They finally went out into battle, took the Ark of the Covenant with them, and both, Hopni and Phinehas both were killed in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. They came back and told Eli, both your sons are dead, because Daddy wouldn't do anything about it. Are you hearing me, church? It was an indulgent parent. You don't do anybody a favor by allowing sin, and you don't do something. As a pastor, I would not be doing you a favor by looking the other way when I see there's something in your life that needs correcting. If I love you, Jesus, the Bible says if you're a child of God, he chastens his children. If he does not chasten you, you are a bastard. You don't belong to him. He chastens his children. Why? Because he's not doing you a favor by not chastening you. He chastens you to correct you so that you can live in holiness. And God is not an indulgent parent. His commands are serious. And he will bring justice. His commands will be carried out or else. So Moses has been called. He's seen and heard from God in the burning bush. He's thrown the rod down. He's seen it turn into a serpent. He's seen the leprosy. He's seen the water turn into blood. Church, we could compare ourselves to that in many ways. We've seen God move in our life. We've seen His power. We've heard His voice. We've felt His touch. But I can tell you something, church. There is no experience. Everybody say experience. There's no experience that you can have that will compensate for personal holiness. God will not wink at our sin. He tells us in Hebrews 12 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that said to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. In other words, he follows the commands. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name? Done many mighty works. I threw the stick down. It turned to a snake. I taught a leper. I poured out the blood. I've done all of that. But I was a worker of iniquity. Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can't do both. God give us a command, be ye holy, for I am holy. Moses was a spiritual leader, what made this worse. And he's about to compromise. He's about to compromise. God could not have judged the children of Israel later on. Every time they would drift, they would start worshiping other gods, God would send in plagues and he would discipline them. Not because he's trying to beat them up. All discipline is for restoration. Do you understand that? Yeah. If you're beating up on your kids, it's because you like to beat up on your kids. You're wrong. Amen. Amen. Why do you discipline your children? And I hope, parents, that you obey God's word. Because I think he knows a little bit more about how to raise kids than we do. Man, I could go off. That's a soapbox because I see so much of it. It turns my stomach. Kids are out of control. And you're trying to negotiate with a child. No, I got some right here that negotiates with children, brother. They get it too, brother. The seed of understanding is connected to the to the uh, the the what is it? I forget now. The seed of thank you, board of education. Connected to the. I forget now. I used to say it, but there's a connection between the brain and the butt. Is what I'm trying to say. And it works, brother. Solomon said that. If thou beatest thy son with a rod, he shall not surely die. When you discipline your child, you save their soul from hell. That's right. An undisciplined child brings shame to its mother. If you love your son, you love your child, you're going to discipline them. But you do that to restore them, yeah. to correct them, to help them. Because I'm going to tell you something, church, while I'm on it, I may as well go here. You tell them, and they'll get it. When you spank their little bottom, I'm not talking about child abuse, you know what i My brain works faster than my mouth can sometimes. You understand what I'm saying, right? If they don't get it from you, they will get it from that man with a black robe with that wooden gavel in his hand. I promise you. Only it involves handcuffs and steel bars when it gets to that point. But they are going to do what they're told. There are laws in the land and they will be followed or else. Moses brought all that about, you understand. And he knows this, but he himself has negated doing what is right. And it's not a sin that he necessarily committed. It's something that he, he didn't do. It was a sin of omission. He's a spiritual leader, and he's about to compromise. I see this as a big problem in some churches today. What's going on in churches, and it seems to be, maybe it's always happened. I don't know. Maybe it's because we are a world of information now. We know about it as soon as it happens. And certainly the news media, they want to rush in anytime a pastor does something. Because leaders, not just pastors, bishops, whatever you want to tell them, they're held at a higher level. There is a great, Mike was talking about this the other day, there's a higher expectation for leaders. Some rightly. Uh, uh, it, it's some rightly, uh, what's the word? Yeah, you expect it and some kind of not really, it's un- unrealistic expectations, all right? Nevertheless, there are, the leaders are held to a higher standard. And we're seeing more and more people falling in the pulpit, especially the sexual immorality. We're seeing it's like rampant. It's as if the rules don't apply to me. But church, I I, I submit to you, we see that because the leaderships are so visible. But if that's going on in the pulpit, what's going on in the pew? Come on, somebody. Yeah, we don't hear about that. But the command of God is not a suggestion in the pulpit or in the pew. It is a command, and it will be followed or else. He's up in front, and he's he's about to compromise. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he said, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Brother, that has become a burst for my life. Because I know how easy it is to fall. Trust me. It's difficult. Because I, I I was sharing with somebody this morning, the higher the level... The bigger the devil, brother, there's a great big target on church leaders. Because if you can bring that guy down, he's so visible, everybody sees it. it. What did he say about David? You have caused the enemy, you've given them great occasion to blaspheme. He's the king of the children of Israel. I'm sure that adultery and deception and everything was going on throughout the Jewish population. But it didn't cause such great occasion for blasphemy until the leader was seen doing it. Do you understand? So there's a bigger target, and I understand that. But, and I, and I, I don't think it's dealt with harshly enough in the church world today. And I may be wrong, but I believe that a church leader that falls to moral failure should never step back in the pulpit again. That's my personal opinion. God help me, if I ever did that, I would go sell cars or something, but I would never set foot back in the pulpit again. I don't think it's right. I think you have forfeited that sacred trust. Because, I mean, you people trust me. And I carry a a, a weighty thing, and it's it's serious to me. I would not want to betray your trust. If I did, God help me that I would never. I'm not going to say, because the Bible says, be careful when you think you stand. Lest you fall. All right, I know that it's it's possible. A moment of weakness, the right place, the right situation, everything. You can cross the line, and I'm not trying to judge men that have done that. Some of them, it's been just it didn't. They didn't see it coming. It blindsided them, and it happened. Some of them, they strategized and planned it. And it was in their heart. They were wicked, perverse-minded people. God deals with that. All I know that it is, is wrong. And when it happens, I just don't believe, you restore them to fellowship, but not leadership. I like the way Chuck Swindoll put it. He said, it only takes one pin to bust a balloon. And brother, that's a balloon. And sexual immorality busts that. And to try to fix that to me and my mind is like trying to put that balloon back together again and put the same air inside of it. Can't do it. Maybe I'm a little harsh on that, but maybe I'm that harsh so it keeps me in line. You know what I'm saying? Because this is it. If you can lower the expectation of the leader, it is much more comfortable for the followers to compromise. Yeah. Now, we don't have high expectations of him because if we hold him up there, then we've got to keep ourselves straighter, you know. No, uh-uh. that's the wrong way to do it. I, I expect you to hold me accountable. Because I'm going to hold you accountable. Amen? We need to hold each other accountable. Boy, it's awful quiet here. I wish somebody would help me out here. Timothy said this. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let the elder that rules well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. You should give double honor to a man who's who's laboring in the Word. But with that comes a, a big responsibility. There is a higher standard. In Hebrews 13, he says, Those that watch for your souls, they must give an account. Moses was held at a higher standard. He's getting ready to be the leader of the whole nation of Israel. You can't be compromising Moses. You're held to a higher standard. you got to do this right. James said this, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. You are held to a higher standard because you're going to be judged on a higher standard. This is serious stuff, church, yeah. and, and I'm afraid that people don't take it seriously anymore. How in God's name? I just can't imagine this. A man could get out of a bed of adultery and step back in the pulpit. I, first of all, I figure I'd die with a heart attack in the act itself anyway. And to step in the pulpit, a bolt of lightning would hit me for sure. If Jeannie didn't shoot me first, right? She'd be like that. I know who's going to dress you and give, comb your hair, boy. <laughs> the undertaker. <laughs> hey, man, she's proficient with a 38 Special, too, man. I've seen her. One day, we, I had a little 22 Revival. She had a 38 Special. And I, I set a tin can up on the fence out behind the house. I said, all right, let's see what you got. And she said, pow, and shot that tin can right off of the fence post. So I was gonna show her how good I was. I said it anyway, so I just got the round of it. I pulled my twenty-two out and missed it six times. So I know who's gonna win in that gunfight. So Moses he's not only has he made excuses, but he is now getting ready to willingly disobey the command of God. And God's judgment is gonna be quick and it's gonna be severe. Moses met him at the camp and says, I'm going to kill you, Moses. I'm going to kill you. Now, brother, when God says he's going to kill you, you're in trouble, brother. You are one dead duck, brother. You're toast. You're burnt burnt bacon, brother. But the good news is when God saw the blood because of an intercessor. How many of you love intercessors? Amen. Zipporah, she took the knife. Actually, it was a flint stone. Because actually in their ceremonials, they, would, they wouldn't use metal. They would use flint. Because a flint stone is actually a cleaner cut than a knife. Am I right, Bernie? Bernie Smith knows how to nap flint. He, like arrowheads. And if you get the right flint and you nap it, it's like a serrated edge knife. And it's like a razor blade, brother. This thing is sharp. And she took a flint stone and she circumcised their oldest son. Now, I don't know how old this boy was, but that's painful, I'm sure. <laughs> Amen, brother. Hey. Oh. I feel your pain, brother. <laughs> Abraham was 90 years old when this happened. Talk about the faith. As the Bible says that he, was, he believed God and was counted them to righteous. I guess so. But she circumcised according to the command of God. See, circumcision is just basically entering into a blood covenant with God. That's what this was all about. It's a blood covenant. And when God sees the blood, every time God sees the blood, whew, even see, Moses understands this. He, he, he understands now when later on when God tells him, paint the blood over the lintel and on the doorpost. He knows it'll work. Because it saved his life. God saw the blood. She threw it at his feet and says, You're a man of blood now. Now, commentators, they go back and forth about what all that meant. What it means is you're under the blood again. Yeah. Yeah. You're under the blood. Aren't you glad you're under the blood this morning? Because we mess up now. We do. Sin just means missing the mark. Everybody in here missed the mark this week. But when God looks down, instead of saying, I'm going to kill you, he sees the blood. So Moses understands this. He understands what intercession is. When God says, Moses, get back. I'm killing them all. I'm going to start over with you. Moses went before God and interceded for the people. And the Bible says God repented. He changed his mind. How I many you know God can change his mind? Yeah. He's sovereign. He can do anything he wants to do. He could get tired of this whole thing tomorrow and says, I'm done with humanity. <laughs> it's gonna be me and you, Jesus. I'm tired of messing with that bunch. He could do that. Yeah. Some people say he couldn't because he can't go against his own word and he's already prophesied what he's gonna do, but he's sovereign. He can do anything he wants to in my book. I Exodus chapter 12, and I will pass through the land of Egypt at the, on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be as a sign for you, you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Thank you for the blood, Jesus. Romans chapter 5, 8 and 9. For God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Church, I'm going to conclude with this, and we're going to go eat some hot dogs or fried chicken or whatever we got back there. It's a serious thing to ignore the command of God because it's not a suggestion. It is a command, and it will be carried out or else. But when you've missed the mark, or even when you deliberately sinned, even Pharaoh could have repented. Lest you repent. It is not a small thing to ignore the command of God. It is a serious thing. But if you do, thank God there is blood. I thank Him for His mercy. It's the only thing that will turn back the wrath of God is the blood. And in that picture, I mean, here's Moses, man. He, he knows better. How many of us know? You can stand to your feet if you would, please. Stand with me, please. How many of us know better And sometimes we do things and we just commit sin. The Bible says, to him that knoweth to do good and do it not. To him it's a sin. That's the sin of omission. I didn't really commit a sin, but I didn't do what I was supposed to. And that was a sin. And church... I've dedicated my life to telling people what God has to say about His his commands and His his rites and His rituals and all of the, the attributes of God and His nature because I believe with all of my heart that this is a serious matter. And if we get this wrong... There is no trying to get it right the next time because there is no next time. It's for all eternity. People are going to die and go to hell for eternity because they have sin in their life and they won't do anything about it. Whether they commit that sin or whether they just omit to do what's right. Because God says that he will not be mocked. What does that mean? Disrespect to God. Being disrespectful. Some people are disrespectful to God. It happens in church. The Word of God should be honored above all things in our life. But some people are busy chit chatting and joking around and texting while the Word of God is being declared. What is that? God will not be mocked. That's mocking God. It's being disrespectful to God, to the church, to the people around you, to the pastor. It's disrespect. It's what that is. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's a serious matter. And we can see that. I mean, Moses, man, he's doing everything God told him to do except one thing. And God's going to kill him for it. Can you see it's serious? Say it's serious. serious. God, help us this morning, Lord, to see the truth that is in your word. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever, God. We know you're a God of love and compassion, or you wouldn't have sent your own son to die. A cruel death for us. Of course, you're a loving, compassionate God. But, Lord, I hope that I've been effective this morning in getting it across that you are not an indulgent parent. That there are certain things that you expect, and they will be followed or else. And may we know that, God, and not serve you out of fear, but, Lord, serve you because it's the right thing to do. And, God, may we come to a point in our life where we do that because we want to please you, God. Not because we just fear you, but we want to please you, Lord. So, Father, I pray for every person this morning under the sound of my voice, Lord, whether they're here in the sanctuary or, God, whether they're hearing this over the Internet or, God, someone's giving them a recording. Lord, there's a lot of people, God, they're living a life of compromise. And I fear that they're in the place of Moses. They're walking on some dangerous ground, Lord. But, Lord, I pray this morning that we can just intercede for them. Father, you said if you see a brother sin a sin that is not a sin unto death, pray for him. So, God, we intercede this morning for those that are living a life of compromise, Lord. May they get their heart right with you, God. Repent of their sin, Lord. May they plea the blood over their life, God. May they just apply the blood to their heart so that it will turn away your wrath. In Jesus' name, before we leave this morning, I just want to ask you, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I don't want you to walk out of here and say, that pastor didn't give me a chance to be saved this morning. If you don't know Jesus today, you can come to Christ by simply acknowledging that you're lost and you need Jesus as your Savior. The Bible says He will save those, even those that call upon His name. As many as believed on Him, to them gave He power to be the sons of God, even those that call upon His name, He said. So this morning, if that's you, I want you to catch me or somebody in this church before you leave here today and said, I want to become a Christian today. I'm not going to pressure you or browbeat you. That's something you need to do is between you and God. If you really mean it, then you'll take the initiative to do it yourself. I'm not going to try to push emotional buttons to get you to do something. It wouldn't mean anything anyway. Make it real. Let's, let's be real, all right? Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have a place where we can come and worship you. God, I thank you we have a place where we can come and be instructed in your word. God, I thank you that we have a place where we can come and fellowship, Lord, and encourage each other, Father. You said in the first church they they went from house to house breaking bread and fellowshipping, Lord. And, God, we've set aside the third Sunday of each month, Lord, just for that, Lord. Our Acts 2 meal is for that reason, Lord, that we can break bread together and fellowship. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us in our time of worship. You've blessed us in our time of instruction. We ask you now, God, that you bless us in our time of fellowship, Lord. As we break bread together, I thank you for the food that's prepared. I ask, God, that you would sanctify, make it wholesome, nourishing, clean, Father God, that it would build strength in our body, Lord. We give you the praise for it, Lord, for it's from you that all abundance flows, Lord, and we are truly abundantly blessed here in America. Thank you for our food today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.